Good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the book of Acts, chapter 11, where in just a moment I'll be reading a passage of Scripture that will be the foundation for this morning's message. Open to Acts, chapter 11. While you're turning to Acts 11, let me echo the message of that last video and say that for me, the cooperative program is a very personal experience. Uh, I, I am the president of Gateway Seminary, which was founded in 1944 as Golden Gate Seminary and then adopted in 1950 as your Southern Baptist Seminary on the West Coast. Over the years, the seminary has grown to be quite strong. In fact, uh, it's the 10th largest seminary in North America. Now, that surprises a lot of people because in Southern Baptist life, Gateway is often thought of as, well, the small seminary out west. And in some sense, we are smaller than some of the other larger schools here in the South. But in the 270 seminaries in North America, we're about the 10th largest, with about 2,000 students enrolled this, this uh, school year. The reason I tell you that is because there's no way that Southern Baptists in the West would have had the strength to build that kind of seminary. It's only that strong because of two things. First, the grace of God. And second, the giving of Southern Baptists through the National Cooperative Program, which has provided for us the financial strength we've needed to grow to where we are today. And so I'm thankful for the cooperative program because of what it means for our school. But I'm also thankful even more personally for what it meant for me as a pastor. In 1989, I moved my wife and three small children, the youngest of which was only six weeks old, to Portland, Oregon to plant a new church. And in making that church planting commitment, we were supported by the cooperative program and also by money that came through the Annie Armstrong Easter offering for uh, North American missions. And those funds, along with some others along the way, made our church plant a possibility. And today, now these 30 years later, uh, that church is the largest Southern Baptist church in Oregon and one of the most influential churches in the Northwest region. So thank you for your gifts through the cooperative program. They made a difference in our school. They made a difference in my life and in my family's life. Uh, the cooperative program is not some impersonal bureaucracy. It's people like me that have been recipients of it and have tried to make a difference with what you've given. So thank you for those gifts. Now, in coming today, your pastor asked me to preach on the theme of gospel generosity. And that's so easy for me to do because it's something that's at the core of who I am as a ministry leader. And you'll hear some of those stories as we go through the message today. He particularly wanted me to challenge you to maintain your pattern of being a church that demonstrates gospel generosity. And as I told him after the first service, it's so encouraging for me to come to a church that's already doing so many of the things I'll be preaching about today and to try to fan the flame of that rather than trying to spark the fire, if you know what I mean. <laughs> So I'm grateful for the strength you have and for the patterns you've established. And hopefully my coming along today will fan the flames of those and stir them up just a bit. In order to do that, I'd like for you to, to introduce you this morning to a church in the New Testament, which I believe is the most significant church, certainly in the Bible and maybe even in church history. The church in Antioch is the one I'm mentioning. I actually feel so strongly about this that I wrote a book a few years ago entitled The Case for Antioch in which I make the case that Antioch is not only the most important church in the New Testament world, but perhaps even the most important church in the history of the church uh, because of what it means for us today. 
The church in Antioch is significant because it was the first place where the gospel was preached widely among the Gentiles. It's also the first place where Paul and Barnabas emerged as missionary and pastoral leaders. It's the first place where offerings were received, which we'll talk about today, that furthered the ministry of the gospel. It's the first place where a church intentionally sent out mission teams that made a difference in other locations. So for these reasons and a number of others, if you really want to know them, you can find them in the book. Uh, For these reasons and many others, I believe the church in Antioch is that consequential. But today, I'd like to read the story and then talk with you about what it says to us specifically about the issue of gospel generosity. So Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 19 The summary of the history of the starting of the church, followed by two short descriptions of worship services that took place at the church in Antioch, and what we can learn about the pattern of church life by studying those two services. Verse 19. Now, those who'd been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them. Let me just stop there for just a moment. Some of them. The men who founded the church in Antioch, their names are lost to history. We don't know their names. That should encourage you greatly this morning. You may wonder sometimes if what you do matters, because frankly, no one's noticing. You're not getting written up in the paper. You're not getting posted online. You're not getting accolades in a public context. And you wonder, does what I do really matter? Well, these men mattered, and their names didn't even get included in the story. They started the most consequential church in our history, and their names never mentioned. You say, well, that's not that unusual. Oh, yes, it really is. There are 170 named characters in the New Testament. You'd think these guys could have gotten their name in the book. I think they are an intentional omission to underscore for us that we don't have to be noticed to do something that matters. They certainly did. These men from Cyprus and Cyrene came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Then he, sent, then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. This passage of Scripture summarizes the founding of this wonderful church. And now, all we're going to really know about its function is is encapsulated in two short passages which describe two worship services that took place at the church. Next verse, 27. First service. In those days, some prophets or preachers came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. 
They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. That's worship service number one. Now turn to chapter 13. First verse, worship service number two. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. Now, let's take a moment to look at the example of these two worship services and what we learn from studying them about gospel generosity through the church. And after we've analyzed this story, these two stories just a bit, then I want to make some practical application of what that looks like today in a church like yours. The first thing we see is in the first worship service described in Acts chapter 11, 27 through 30, is that Antioch gave away its money. Now, the story is pretty simple, at least on the surface. Some preachers came down from Jerusalem. One of them was named Agabus. Now, Agabus is mentioned in other, uh, other instances in the Bible. He was apparently a well-known preacher, a guy that you actually would drive across town to hear. And so Agabus shows up as a part of this preaching delegation from Jerusalem, and he announces in the middle of his message that the Jerusalem church is facing a famine. And there's a footnote in the text that says this actually happened during the reign of Claudius to give us some context. Well, when the Antioch Christians heard that their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem were going to experience a famine, it tells us in verse 29 what they did. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers who lived in Judea. They received this relief offering, and it says they sent it by means of the elders up to Jerusalem to take care of this need. Now, that's a pretty simple story that sounds a lot like a common experience in a church. A guest preacher arrives, preaches a special message, asks for an offering, the church gives it, and it's sent to take care of the need that had been presented. But there's much more to this story. The backstory is this. The Jerusalem church had received the gospel eight, maybe ten years prior to this experience. And when the Jerusalem church received the gospel, we know from studying Acts chapter 2 or Acts chapter 1 that Jesus had told them to take the gospel to the whole world. And in Acts chapter 2, when the gospel arrived, it arrived with that many languages experience indicating the gospel was for everyone. And you'd think the church obeyed and did exactly what they were told. But the early part of the book of Acts is actually the story of the church's disobedience to the Great Commission. The church remained a largely Jewish movement headquartered in and around Jerusalem. Now, the gospel, you might say, leaked out to a Gentile or two along the way, but there was no real movement of the gospel among the Gentiles until this incident in Antioch. And when the gospel started to spread widely among the Gentiles, it caused consternation for the Jerusalem church. You see, up until that time, they said, oh, Gentiles can certainly become Christians as long as they become Jews first, meaning that the men had to be circumcised before they could become Jews, and then they could become Christians. But scandal upon scandal, these preachers are saying that doesn't have to happen, that you can come to faith in Jesus Christ by grace through faith alone without any work of righteousness or human intervention. You can come directly to God through Jesus. You're not looking scandalized. (laughs) 
That's because we're 2,000 years after the battle. But this was quite a conflict in this day that I'm reading about from the Scriptures. These Jewish Christians had heard about these Antioch believers doing this scandalous thing of coming to faith in Jesus without first being circumcised, sent Barnabas down there, not as an encourager, which he was later known to be, but as an inquisitor to check out the situation and put a stop to this movement. Barnabas arrived, we read the story, and said he saw this was of the grace of God and decided to not stop the movement, but what? Move it along. That's what was going on between these two churches. And you say, well, yes, but I'm sure they got it worked out. No, not really. You can read over in Acts chapter 15 that they had what's called the Jerusalem Council when a group from Antioch went to Jerusalem and they had a major conflict over this issue to try to sort out what would be the doctrine of salvation for all time. And the gospel won the day. And the gospel by grace through faith has been preached now since that time. That's the conflict that was going on. And in the midst of this conflict, Agabus arrives. (laughs) And here's kind of how his sermon might have sounded. Well, uh, I'm here from Jerusalem to preach to all of you Gentile Christians here in Antioch. We've had the gospel for a decade, tried to keep it from you, weren't successful. (laughs) You received the gospel, didn't get circumcised. That really made us angry. It's going to be so bad that eventually you're going to have to send a delegation up to Jerusalem to work this problem out because, quite frankly, we have to get this resolved. But in the meantime, while we're still having the conflict, I've got some news for you. Your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, the old church, the big church, they're facing a famine. And I'm here to ask you to send an offering to help them out. Now, you're still not getting this. Let's suppose that I started a social media campaign to tear down your church. And I attacked your church uh, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all methods that I could discover. I said evil things about you. I lied about you. I damaged your reputation. I encouraged people not to come because I wanted everyone in this community to know that there was something wrong with your church and everybody should be coming to my church. Then a tornado comes through town and flattens my church building. And I decide I'll come to you and ask for an offering to help us rebuild. How's that going to go? Yeah, not so well, right? Now you're beginning to get the picture. You see, this was a remarkable offering that they gave. Why? Because they gave to their detractors. They gave to their enemies. They gave to their opponents. They gave to people who had withheld the gospel from them and then attacked them when they received the gospel. Not only did they do that, they gave to meet pressing needs in the midst of real doctrinal differences. Wow. Now you're getting a fuller understanding of what it means to give an offering in this context. That's what gospel generosity looks like. We give because it's the right thing to do when people are hurting, when need has been revealed. Not even when we necessarily agree with everything about the people who need the help, but we do it because it's the right thing to do. Well, that's one way the church gave. They gave away their money. But then, what else did they do? Well, we learned about that over in Acts 13. This time, they gave away something else, and that is, they gave away their leaders. Antioch gave away their leaders. Now, this is an interesting service they're having when 
suddenly the Holy Spirit says, I want you to send Paul and Barnabas on mission. It's very interesting to me that God did not say to Paul and Barnabas, I want you to go on mission. He told the church to tell their leaders, you're leaving. And these weren't peripheral men. These were the core leaders, the pastor and the associate, if you will. And the church said, we're going to send our best leaders. And not only are we going to send them, but we're going to lay hands on them indicating spiritual blessing. We're going to give them the financial resources they need. We're going to send them around the Mediterranean world and then bring them back to us for accountability and rest. We're going to make sure the gospel goes more places. So as we look at the church at Antioch, notice these two gifts. They gave away their money and they gave away their people. And the results of their generosity is significant. Well, first of all, the obvious result was famine relief was achieved. Hungry people in Jerusalem were fed. But also new churches got started around the Mediterranean world. And so we see in the Bible places like Corinth and Philippi and other cities that are listed. They all received churches. And that story is told throughout the rest of the book of Acts and then amplified by Paul writing so much of the rest of the New Testament. So not only was famine relief achieved and new churches started, but also the framework for all of the New Testament was established as Paul then wrote letters to all these places. And beyond that... The the mission to the Gentiles was confirmed, which makes it possible for your church to even be here today. And then, finally, the missionary paradigm of churches sending out missionaries and praying for them and supporting them and bringing them back for accountability and rest. All of that is established by what happened in these two worship services when the Antioch church gave away their money and their leaders. Wow. That's what gospel generosity looks like. Now let's talk about what that looks like for you here today. First of all, this, this story teaches us that gospel generosity begins when we give proportionally. When we give proportionally. Now, proportional giving is a biblical pattern. It started in the Old Testament. It started in the Old Testament law as People that were poor gave some kind of offerings and sacrifices, but people who had more resources were told to give other kinds of offering and sacrifices. And so whether you brought a little turtle dove or you brought a lamb, different things were for different people. And then it moved into the New Testament teaching about something called the tithe, which is a percentage of giving, meaning that you give at least 10% of your income back to God. And then you go on from that. And the Bible talks about even doing more than that even in the Old Testament. Then we move into the New Testament and we see proportional giving continued. Now you say, really, does it even continue in the New Testament? Well, it continues right here in this passage. Did you pick up on verse 29, that little phrase? It says, each of the disciples according to his ability. That means the poor gave a little and the rich gave a lot. Because everyone gave according to their ability. You know, this is really the genius of Christian giving and Christian uh, generosity. And that is, we're not called upon in the Bible to measure our giving by our amount. We're called upon to measure it by our proportion of what we have. So if you don't have very much, you're not expected to give very much. But if you've been blessed with a lot, you're expected to give a lot because we give out of what we have. Proportional giving is that equal give, not equal gifts, but equal sacrifices kind of idea that flows throughout the history of giving in God's economy. So proportional giving is a biblical pattern. And it's a good biblical pattern for us to follow individually. 
But it's also a good biblical pattern for us to follow corporately as a congregation. I know your church, for example, gives 10% of your receipts to the cooperative program. And even then beyond that, you give special offerings to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. And then beyond that, even you give additional resources to help church or to help missionaries and other projects that go on in your community and outside and in your state and around the world. You're giving generously because you're giving proportionally and then beyond those proportions to even give sacrificially to what needs to be established. So proportional giving is a biblical pattern. Now, proportional giving really benefits churches and even benefits recipients like me. Let me give you some examples. First of all, proportional giving ensures generosity remains in proportion to the provision that God gives. So that means that when God has given your church a lot, you're giving a lot. When God's not giving you quite so much, you're not giving quite so much. But you're always giving proportionally means that you're always giving with generosity in relationship to your available resources. It also ensures stability during economic fluctuations. It means that when we're all going up, we all have more. When we're all going down, we all have less. Now, I'm a recipient of your missions giving at Gateway Seminary, and I want to underscore for you how immediate that giving is. You know, a lot of people think of the cooperative program of giving among Southern Baptists as a big bureaucracy. It really isn't. It's actually what's been described as a rope of sand, meaning that when you're pouring sand and the sand is flowing, you can see it, but when you stop, it goes away. Do you realize that when you make a gift at your church on a Sunday, like you'll do today, and a few days or a few weeks from now, that gift is forwarded on part of it to, through the cooperative program. How long do you think it is be, between the time you give your money this morning at, our, at your church and I actually receive that money at Gateway Seminary? It's only about six to eight weeks. There's no Southern Baptist cooperative program savings account anywhere. There's no reserve funds held by the cooperative program. Did you know that? Now... I'm required both by convention policy and law to maintain reserves as an end user because I'm the one who actually employs the people and runs the programs and maintains the school. So we have a few months of reserves that we're holding. But in terms of the flow, there are no reserves. It, it flows from your church to your state convention to, the, uh, to, to Nashville and out to the, to, the, uh, to the seminaries. In fact, you may be surprised at this. We actually get a weekly distribution of the cooperative program. It comes every Tuesday. It's a happy day. <laughs> but it comes every week because the churches give weekly and the money flows weekly and we receive it weekly. All I'm saying is that it ensures that, that, that I said this, this proportional giving ensures stability during economic fluctuation. But, you know, when the pandemic started... We had a meeting at Gateway Seminary among our financial decision makers, and we said, you know what? The church is maybe about to go through a really rough time. So you know what we need to do? We need to get ready for a rough time at our place. Because if the churches are having a difficult time, it's only right that we have a difficult time. I love being a Southern Baptist because of this. We are directly connected to the churches. If the churches are thriving, we're thriving. If the churches are struggling, we're struggling. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing because it's not just financial sensitivity. It's all other kinds of sensitivity that comes with it. We're connected to the churches. So proportional giving means that we can count on strength and we can all count on struggle 
going through it together. And then it also means proportional giving also means that priorities remain the same, even if the resources don't. You know, the mission of the gospel to the nations is our priority. And if we have a thousand dollars and we can give 10% of that, which is a hundred dollars, that's awesome. But let's say our giving, let's say our resources drop from a thousand just down to 500. You say, oh, well, we've lost half of our resources. We need to cut out that mission to the nations because we've got to save money for other things. No, it just means we're going to give only $50, doesn't it? But we're not going to diminish the priority because of proportional giving means we're going to give the same proportion no matter how much we have because that's what we're going to give away because that's our priority. Tracking with me this morning? So mission, or excuse me, so the first application really of this is give proportionately. Give proportionately because of all of these good reasons why it represents the pattern of God in our lives and why it has all of these benefits that I'm describing. Do it individually, do it corporately. It's the way that's described here in the church at Antioch. Now, second. A second demonstration of gospel generosity is giving to meet human needs. Now, to be honest at this point, this has not always been a priority for me. Uh, because of my upbringing and some things I was taught as a younger man, I haven't, really had a, I haven't really had a strong desire to help the poor. I, I was told that you shouldn't do that because people need to pull themselves up and people need to take responsibility. And, and, and if you give people too much, it'll facilitate their, their neediness and, and all of these kinds of things. And there is some truth to some of that. But what I wasn't taught fully was there, there are some people who are just simply hurting through no fault of their own. They've been caught up in a famine. They're victims of warfare. They're living in refugee camps. They've had a natural disaster happen in their area. These are not things they caused or could have prevented or could have done anything about by their choices. They're overwhelmed by the negative circumstances of life. And in those contexts, they deserve and need and our help and are an example of Christian love when we do something about it. That's what happened here at Antioch. The first offering received at Antioch was not to send the mission team around the Mediterranean. That was the second one. The first offering that was received was to feed hungry people in Jerusalem. Now, I've come a long way on this for two, because of two promptings. First of all, I, I discovered in the Bible that there's a need to give to and help the poor. And secondly, I married my wife, Anne, <laughs> who's much more compassionate than I am. And she's been, she was saying to me from the earliest days of our marriage, this needed to be more of a priority. Now, a little bit of our story. When my wife and I got married 41 years ago, actually before we got married, we made a commitment to each other that we would never give less than a tenth of our income away in our married lives. So for 41 years, we've not missed a month, not one. We've not missed a month that we've not given away more than 10% of our income for 41 years. Now, a few years ago, when our children started leaving home and other things started happening. We actually started increasing that percentage and have been increasing it over the years. But along the way, my wife said, you know, Jeff, I know we give to our church and I know we give to missions programs that we support, but I also think we need to give some money to the poor. 
And I discovered a biblical pattern of giving called alms giving, A-L-M-S. And you find that in the Gospels where people gave alms. And you might not find that in every translation. Find an old King James Version and you will find it there. Alms giving. And I discovered that that was a kind of giving that was not just a percentage offering that you gave or a percentage contribution that you made, but it was a special gift that you gave to help the poor. So a number of years ago, my wife and I started budgeting some money every month to do this. Now, I don't want to overstate this. We're not giving thousands every month, nothing like that. But we give to our church and we give to missions, primarily through Southern Baptist causes. And then we give just a little bit more to make sure that we're giving something to the poor. And we do that primarily for us by giving it to uh, Southern Baptist organizations that care for and meet the needs of people in a direct way. But you can do it other ways. You can give money directly by simply finding someone that you know is in need and making sure they've got grocery money this month. You can give through church programs that your church may have that benefit or bless the poor in your community. You can do what we do, which is primarily give through denominational programs, meaning that we give to our international and home mission boards for their send relief projects that they're doing to meet needs in the midst of crises like I've described earlier, famine, natural disaster, war, refugees, things like that. You can also give money to other kinds of efforts that are in your community that, that are part of something your churches may be doing together in your area. But I want to assure you of something that we've learned experientially and we certainly see taught in Scripture. And that is money given to the poor is never missed. God has blessed us for doing this and not blessed us so that we can have more, but blessed us so that we can give more. And given us the resources and the opportunities to continue to say, let's do a little more for people who are really in need. So gospel generosity starts with proportional giving, and I think you can practice that personally, but I'm also so delighted that your church practices it corporately, and I say keep that up for all the reasons that I've described. And then second of all, gospel generosity includes giving to meet human needs. It means that you get personally involved with making sure that hurting people have their needs met. Then third... Of course, this passage teaches us that gospel generosity means we support missionaries. Now, you see that in the, in the uh, uh, work that was done here. Paul and Barnabas were singled out by the church. It says they laid hands on them and sent them out. We know from this story and others that they actually sent them out with financial resources to sustain their work. You can read throughout the rest of the book of Acts how they toured around the Mediterranean world, stopping in places, starting churches, preaching the gospel, doing the work they'd been assigned, and ultimately looping back to Antioch for rest, recovery, and reprovision, if you will, before being sent out again. You see this pattern repeated over and over throughout the rest of the book of Acts. So one of the things that you can do to, be a, to demonstrate gospel generosity is to support missionaries. And I want to talk about doing that in two ways. First of all, I think your primary way is to support missionaries who are, uh, who are a, a part of an organization like our denominations, mission boards, and to su support them in the work that they're doing by giving through the cooperative program and these special mission offerings. You say, yeah, that's a little bit impersonal. I know it is, but it's also very strategic because it allows us to bring the money together pool our resources, pool resources for training, for travel, for, for conferencing, and all the aspects of what these missionaries do, and really propel their work forward in significant ways. 
So I want to encourage you to keep doing what you're doing. But then secondarily, I want to also challenge you as individuals and as a church to get even more personally involved with some missionaries. You know, there's no doubt that your church has either had missionaries that came from your church or have missionaries that are directly connected to your church by church members and church ministries. And I'm not saying that you should become their sole support or their only support, nothing like that. But I am saying that there's something personal about getting involved with them and making sure they have that something extra they need to get their work done. You know, there are so many interesting ways that churches do this, but... Um, but simply finding a way to bless those missionaries with special needs they may have gives a personal touch to missions that's even that, that's not more significant than, but gives a different perspective on the kind of corporate support that we provide all the time. So I want to challenge you uh, to do that. You know, one of the interesting things I saw recently, I was preaching in Wyoming, and the Wyoming Baptist Convention has an interesting practice. There's not that many Baptists in Wyoming. There's only about 90 Southern Baptist churches in the entire state. But they've sent out missionaries to the International Mission Board over the years, a few. And every year at their annual meeting, they have a special offering. And they receive that offering. They divide it up by the number of missionaries that are on the field from Wyoming. And on their birthday... They send them a part of that offering, whatever proportion was given to the number of missionaries in the state. You follow what I'm saying. With a special letter that says, we're the Wyoming Baptist family. You came from us. You belong to us. And primarily, we're supporting you through the cooperative program. But on your birthday, we just want you to have this gift from your family that sent you, your Wyoming Baptist family. And I thought, you know, that's probably not that much money. We're not talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars here, but I just think about what it must be like if you're on the backside of nowhere, wondering if anybody even remembers your name, and on your birthday, you get $250 in the mail from the Wyoming Baptist Convention saying, you're part of us, you came from us, you're a part of our family, we want you to know we hadn't forgotten about you. That's what I'm talking about. I'm saying that as a church, you have those special missionary relationships with one, two, five, ten, I don't know how many, but a few people that you just know there's something special about that support. Just like Paul and Barnabas. That's our people. We're going to take care of them in a special way. You get the idea. And then finally, not only did they give proportionally and to meet human needs and to support missionaries, but finally, they gave away their people. The last demonstration of gospel generosity was sending old Paul and Barnabas out as missionaries. They gave away their people. Now, you may be thinking, now, hold on a minute. I'm not interested in our pastor and our associate pastor getting up this morning and announcing that they're leaving for the mission field. Well, it doesn't have to exactly be those guys. Let me talk to you about what it means to send people on mission. First of all, one way you can do that is sending people on short-term mission assignments. You know, this is a remarkable way we have to bless and help missionaries who are permanently on the field. I heard something about Puerto Rico. Is that what's happening next in your church? That's exactly what I'm talking about. Where your church puts together a team and says, we're going to this mission site to help these missionaries to get their work done. Now, could on behalf of the missionaries, let me just say a couple of things about that this morning. First of all, they're delighted for the help. As long as you come to do what they need done, not what you think needs to be done. Now, keep that in mind. 
Because sometimes American churches get the idea that we kind of know what needs to be done and we'll just go there and do it. And that's often detrimental to the work in those locations. But if you can honestly find a missionary and say, we want to come and serve you. You tell us what you need, we'll come and deliver it. No questions asked. Then you're going to be the kind of team that can really make a difference in other places in the world. Because you go in with humility and a servant's heart and a willingness to get, up, uh, to get involved in a strategy that's already going on. Then you become very effective mission helpers. So I want to encourage you. Do like the Antioch Church and send some people to help with mission. Send some short-term teams to go out. Join the missionaries that are on the field. Support the work they're doing. Build it up. Move it along. And be a part of what they're trying to accomplish in those locations. Then second, you can also do this by sending people to help other churches in your area. When I moved to Oregon to plant the church years ago, we had a sponsoring church that was about your size. wasn't a big church at all. And the pastor said, look, I, I don't know how much we can do to help you, but, but anything we've got that will be of assistance to you, we want to make it available. Well, I visited this church a couple of times, and just like your church, it had a pretty good music program for that size church. So I said to the pastor, you know, it would really help us if your worship or your music uh, team could help us with our church plant. And I don't mean sending everyone or anything like that, but I noticed that your church has a pattern of having like uh, soloists or people sing duets or these kinds of things pretty regularly in your service. And he said, yeah, that's been a kind of a developing part of who we are and what we do. I said, I'll tell you what I'd like to do. When you have someone like that sing on a Sunday, the following Sunday, send them to our church to sing the exact same song for us. One preparation, two opportunities. Well, we presented that to the music program, and they said, man, we're on that. We can do that. Yes. So they would have their worship, and they would do their program, and they would have someone sing. And the following Sunday, that person would come and sing for us. It made us look so much better than we were. <laughs> I mean, here we were trying to get started meeting in a public school uh, gymnasium and, and, and all the stuff that goes with that. And we were scrambling to just even find music and worship leadership for our church plant. And then every Sunday, here'd come two or three people from the other church to sing something for us or to support our work or to help us in that. And they kept that up for the first two years that we were trying to get started. It was a wonderful assistance for us. You see, when I talk about sending someone to help someone else, I'm not talking about necessarily you changing churches or leaving for a year or anything like that. But is there some place that you could say they need help for six weeks or they need help on a rotating basis or they just need someone to come and support what they're trying to get started and we can do that. That's what I'm talking about. Giving people away. And then you could even send people out to help plant something new or to help a new church plant get started. And this can be a combination of what I've just been describing so far. But let me tell you how we did it. And when I started the church in Oregon, we wanted to be involved in missions from the very beginning. In fact, I forgot to say this earlier. When we started our church, we wanted to give to the cooperative program from the very beginning. And so we were having our first worship services in October of 1989. Do you know when we gave our first gifts to the cooperative program? August of 1989. Our core group started meeting two or three months before the church actually opened. And when we started meeting, we started receiving offerings. And we said in August, we need to start giving now proportionally to missions so that we can put it in the DNA of our church. We are a missions giving church. 
And I also wanted to be a mission sending church. So I said to the church plant as we were getting started, before we get our first anniversary, we have to send our first mission team. Now, we're talking about when I said this, there was like 15 of us sitting in a living room. But I said, we have to do it the first year. So by the first summer, we started in August, we opened in October, and the following June, we sent our first mission team to the Tammany View Baptist Church in Lewiston, Idaho, to help them get started. It was their first year also. We put together a team of teenagers and adults, a couple of vans, and we went to Lewiston, Idaho. Let me tell you, it wasn't the greatest mission trip in the history of world Christianity. I'll just say that, okay? There was maybe about 12 to 15 of us. We went over there. We led backyard Bible clubs and did visitation in the community. But what we were trying to do was not only help Tammany View Baptist Church get started. What we were trying to do was establish in our church a pattern that from the very beginning, when we're very small, when we're still a church plant ourselves, we're putting into the DNA of our church that we're a missions giving church. We send our money and we're a missions sending church. We send our people money and people for mission. That's what we want to be about from the first day we started. Now, 30 years later, and I know that's an eye blink in the history of your church, (laughs) but 30 years later, that is now the strongest Southern Baptist church, perhaps in the state of Oregon. And the mission giving in that church is remarkable. The mission representation out of that church is amazing as multiple families have been commissioned by the International Mission Board and sent all over the world. The pastor of that church has been on the board of trustees of the IMB. And that church today has partnerships with three countries and two different continents, ongoing partnerships with missionaries through the IMB supporting all that's going on around the world. I would say that we did something right back then to build into the DNA of this church movement that it was going to be a missions giving and a mission sending church from the very beginning. Give away your people. Give away people as I've described it, in these various kinds of ways to support the work God is doing in other places. Now, when you give away your money and your people, you may say, well, doesn't that weaken our church in some way? No, exactly the opposite. Jesus said, give and it will be given to you. He used an analogy of a grain basket, and he said, give, and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together. In other words, he's going to fill up that basket while you're shaking it until it fills up and overflows. That's what he's going to do. See, God's economy is based on giving. When we give, God promises to replenish what we've given away so that we can be rich, right? No, that's a... No, that's a modern American myth or a modern American theological error that we give to get so we can have a prosperity-type gospel. That's not right. The Bible says we give, and then God replenishes so that we can do what? We can give again. That's exactly right. God's economy is based on giving. We give, He blesses, so that we can turn around and give again, and then He blesses, and we turn around and give again. And so this morning, my challenge to you is a challenge of gospel generosity. The church in Antioch lays out the pattern. They gave away their money. They gave away their people. We make application of that this morning. We give away our money. We give away our people. And like I said at the beginning of this message, it's nice occasionally to come by a good church like yours where I feel like I've come to fan the flame of this, not to try to get the spark started. 
I know you're already doing so many of these things. I want to encourage you to keep doing them and to do them even better and to do them even more and see how God might continue to use you to make a difference all around the world. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for the privilege of preaching here today. And I thank you for the way you've worked in this church over the years to make it a church that does model gospel generosity. And I thank you, Father, that this church has a habit of giving away their money and giving away their people. And I pray this morning that you would motivate them to do so even more. But yet, Lord, I'm aware that there are some who are hearing me speak today that haven't quite yet entered into this pattern. So I pray for them. I pray that you would break down the barriers of selfishness and of greed that so easily rise up within us. And that you would give us the courage to launch out in the great adventure of generosity, believing that you will not only take care of us, but that you will bless us for it. And I pray, Father, that people who are struggling this morning with coming to a place of proportional giving would by faith start giving away the resources that you request of them. And that they would see in that act, an act of faith, they can trust you to provide. And, Father, that you will be over the next few months giving them victory after victory as they understand how you can take care of them, even financially. Thank you for this opportunity to preach, and thank you for this church at Antioch, and thank you for this good church and the difference it's making in our world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Jeff. What an honor. What a great word for us. And I hope you're encouraged today because... God has been faithful to us over 250 years to send our people to the ends of the earth. We have right now uh, pastors who are preaching all over Virginia that were sent out from this church. Uh, Right now we have missionaries uh, around the world who are sent out from this church and supported by this church. And um, Kentucky Baptist as an organization exists because people were sent out from this church 240 years ago. this is the reality, and we should never forget the fact that two men were sent from Goochland County here in 1770 to preach the gospel. And that gospel witness continues here because people were sent from another church to make sure the gospel spread here. So let's be a part of that. Let's be a part of that. And so it may be that uh, you need to rethink what you gave today even, and I would encourage you to do so. I've never been the guy who stands up and says, 